0: Anyway, so in the beginning of any new project, obviously it's veshem Hashem nasa We can't do anything on our own. I definitely can't do anything on my own. But with a group of Jews sitting together on a random Tuesday, not a random Tuesday night, on a, on a, on a candy-filled Tuesday night, right? And with Hashem, we should we should supply our own, you know, zelu that we have our our Torah, the sweetest Torah in the world. Uh, to be to be learning in 2017, it's a very it's a very special thing. Even if we weren't learning anything, just for Jews to sit together, the learn, teach us that's already accomplishing big things. So, the first thing has been accomplished. We're, we're here. We're together. And when we come together to learn the Sefer Nefesh HaKaim, Nefesh ha-chaim is such a classic and such a remarkable overview, a complete overview of the Ashkaf of a Jew, of what we're doing in this world. And that's the most important thing. That a lot of times, people get very caught up with the how of Yiddishkeit, the Halachas and the Populim and Gemaras and Shaka back and forth. But when it comes to the why which is the spark, right, which is the soul, sometimes in the yeshivas, it's missing. And that leads to a certain feeling of disconnection from the bachim as they grow older. And with whatever a person's background is, if he's not connected to the why of Yiddishkeit, why, why am I here? What is my purpose in this world? What is my, my duty toward God, my duty toward others, my duty to myself? So it's easy to become disconnected. And that's what the sefer is really focused on. So let's just discuss a little bit about Rav Chaim Who was he? When did he live? What was his life about? And why does he take up such a singular role in, 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 in the Jewish in the history of the Jewish people? So Rav Chaim is born to parents, Yitzhak and Rivka, actually from, you know, for next week's parish we'll be learning about the original Yitzhak and Rivka. And his father was a very wealthy person who supported many of the Torah organizations in in his town, which was Velazhin. And through his being a parnes, it was called, which means to support, so they had, Rav Chaim and his children, Rav Zalman, as we'll learn about, he had a lot of um, opportunity to meet many of the great Torah minds of the day, among them the Shagas Aryeh. So, the Nefesh Haim, when he was a child, so up until age 15, his Rebbe was Rav Meir Hamburger, Rav Rav Rafal Hamburger, rather, who was a was the Rav of the nearby city of Minsk. And the way it worked at that time, which is exactly what he came with Volazhin to, to upturn and to found the idea of yeshiva. Before that, there was no yeshiva. Right? There was a Rav, there was a Rav of the town who would sit in his shul, It wasn't even a yeshiva, it was the shul, it was the place Knesset. And he would gather some of the talim, Talmidim who were bright, and he would sit and he would teach them. And they would be supported by the community, and people would pay for their meals, or they would go home and eat by these people, and even sleep by these people if they came from out of town. So that's how it was with Rav Chaim. But this was his rebbe that started this, you say? No, this was him so, who started okay. as we're as we're gonna again. discuss. He was born in 19, in, in 1749, okay. in 1749. It's hard to remember all the details. I'm not a, a historical, you know. But, um, so this was until age 15. At age 15, he had opportunity to meet the Shagas Now, Rav Chaim, although in person he was meeting the Shagas for the first time, his life was bound up with the Shagas from his birth. Because the legend goes that Rifka, his mother, had lent the Shagas Arya on one of the Shagas Arya's trips, with, over, over which he was staying by Rav father's house, lent him a shas. At that time, shas was very, it was very scarce, you know, and uh, it was very, very expensive. And for somebody to have a whole shas to lend to a Talmud who was was holding an all of shas was a very big deal. And the Shagas Ariya was so pleased with his gift that he promised Rifka in return that he would, she would have two sons. One would cause Shas to be learned throughout the world, and the other would know Shas so well that he wouldn't need a Shas. That's what he promised. The first son was Rav Chaim of Lajin, who founded the modern ideal of a yeshiva, as we'll discuss, and caused Torah learning to be, to be disseminated throughout the world and for all generations. And the other was Rav Zalman. Rav Zalman. was Rav Chaim's younger brother who surpassed him, and we're going to learn about Rav Chaim's genius. So to surpass Rav Chaim was something that's unimaginable to us. At the time he was 13, he knew Shas. back 13, and we're talking about children. For us, we don't have such as Sagas. But back then, and this is not such, you know, such and so in the past. This is 200 years ago, you know, 250 years ago. That was Rav Zalman, who knew Shas so well that he didn't need Shas. He had the whole thing in his head. That's what we learn about Rav Zalman. And so at age 15, the Nebuchadnezzar had opportunity to learn with the Shagasari, which was an opportunity that touched him and remained with him throughout his life. Just those two weeks, I think it was two weeks, that he got to sit with the Shagasari, and he would talk about that for, for the rest of his life. Why just two weeks? Those, those were the two weeks that the Shagasari was staying by his father's house. Oh, okay. Two weeks. His father, was, the Shagasari was Rav and and then he moved out to a different town. The two weeks, as he was transitioning out, he stayed by, by the, by the Nebuchadnezzar's family. Is the Shagasari known for any specific works? For the Shagasari, on, on, on the Gemara. Oh, so that is? Right? It's one of the... One of the, one of the most clear of that time, Pirushim, on, on the Gemara, and most respected. The Shagasari is known world, worldwide in the Ishig world. So the Shagasari was staying by his house, and he sat, and he got to learn with Rav Chaim, who showed genius <clears throat> and, and prospect and promise. After that period, Rav Chaim's focus was solely, solely focused on the Vilna Gaon. As we know, Rav Chaim was the, the primary pupil and the scribe of the Vilna Gaon, and his entire focus was, he wanted to be a Talmud of the Geruch. Now, the Graz, we know, at that time, was the foremost of the non-Hasidic right, camp in Yiddish Ket at that time, the leader of all of Vilna Jewry, even though he was, he never held an official position. He wasn't a Rav, he wasn't a Rabbi. He was just one of those lights that within him contained all of the Torah, Pshat, as just said, the entirety of all of the Torah, and they compared him to the Rishonim, his level of, his level of grasp of Torah, all levels. So Chaim, being, you know, young, still a student, why shouldn't he go to the top? And he was focused on learning with the Vilna Gain, something which was, it was a rarity because the Gaim was secluded in his room. They say he didn't even know the difference between day and night sometimes. He was just learning and learning, and they had to remind him when, was, when the difference around were. He would just sit in his room and learn and learn and learn. He didn't have a he didn't learn with the people. But Rav Chaim set his sights on the highest to learn with the Gra. And he was waiting for an opportunity to meet the Grah. One didn't just go and knock on the Grah's door. So he was waiting for this opportunity. And one time, the gra was coming to Velazhin for a bris. The bris was on Sunday, and the Volnagön would be in town over Shabbos. And so he thought to himself, now's my chance. Was he in Vilna at the time, the Volnagön? The Volnigan was in Vilna. How far, how far? I'm not sure the distance, how far Velazhin is from Vilna. No. I don't surmise that it's such a long no. distance. But the gra was visiting Velazhin at that time, and Rav Chaim thought to himself, nobody's going to remember to provide the Gro with, with warm water to, to wash himself. He's here, he's from outside, and people are so busy with everything else, but to go and provide him with hot water, he didn't have a shower. So to heat up water and to bring it to the Volunkine, that's something that I'm gonna, I'm gonna grab that opportunity. And so he heats up water, and he brings it in a bucket, and he knocks on the girl's door. And this is a good excuse for a stranger, and a stranger, a Jew, right, to knock on the door and to introduce himself to get his foot in the door, kip shute, right, literally, or a bucket in the door, whatnot. Right? So the, gra, the gra, oh, he knocks on the door, and the gro opens the door. You can imagine the sight, right? this, this little old man who encompasses within him thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of terse, difficult text, lucid, clear, backwards and forwards, inside out. And he opens the door a crack. And Reb Chaim tells him, he says, Rabbi, I'm here to provide you with water, warm water for Shabbos. And he says, oh, come in. So once he's in there, you know, he didn't start with introductions. He just said, he said, He said, Holy Tzadik, I learned Seder Moyed. 19 times in my life. He was 24 at the time. 19 times he learned Seder Mayid, Shabbos, Psachim, right? Sukkahs, all of these mesakhtas, Sukkah. And he said, I don't understand it. That's what he tells the Grah. The thing is, expecting maybe, wow, you learned Mayid 19 times, right? And for the Grah to recognize, we have somebody in front of me who's not just I'm a person. He learned Mayid he learned 19 times. Right? We can assume that that, that was his. And the Gura looks at him and he says, he says, 19 times and you expect to understand the maid. He says, if you learn Ma'ed your whole life, you won't begin to understand it. And from that moment began the relationship between the Vilna Gain and Rav Chaim which lasted 35 years to the end of the Gura's life and far beyond into the life of Rav Chaim The opportunity to learn with the Gura came a year later when he was 25 years old. He was invited with his brother of Zalman to study exclusively just them two with the Goyen. And they sat and they learned with him day and night. Yom and stayed in Vilna. And it was just a two-year period. And the two years, what he gained, all, all of, the, of, the, of the introduction of Rav Chaim Balazhin to the Graz Pirish on Sifr Ditz-Niusa, which is a portion of the czar, what he explains, his, his understanding of the Grah in terms of his Torah learning, the amount of Torah that he absorbed from him, in those two years, the amount of purity, the amount of kedusha, of precious, of, separate, of separation from the world that he absorbed during those two years, it's remarkable. It was during those two years that Urchaim conceived of the idea of a yeshiva. Which is interesting because here was somebody who was learning, totally not in that mode, which might have spurred him on to say, hey, this is great. Right? You have a rebbe, I'm learning with him, we are mature enough to maintain a certain level of structure in our daily life. right? Not a certain level, a very high level of structure. Why shouldn't this be an experience that could be shared the world over with all the yeshiva bacham? Now again, what was, what was before? So we said, you would have a rav. The rav would sit in his, his knesset. He was paid to do this. And the parents would send the children who showed a promise to the, to the shul, and they would sit and they would study and they would learn. The structure was lacking. All of what we know is a seder hayyim of a schedule, that there's breakfast and there's this. that wasn't an establishment. It wasn't called a yeshiva. It was a couple of Jews sitting and learning by their rav wasn't a Rebbe, wasn't that Rebbe Talmud relationship. And inevitably, since the yeshiva was, was, was supported by the community, as with anything that's supported by anybody, it's beholden to that thing. And so all the opinions of the community with regard to what should be learned, how it should be learned, so the rebbe had to follow all these things. And also something that is supported by something, not only is it beholden, but it's looked down upon. Right, because it's viewed like, this is not something of hashivas, it needs to be supported. It can't, with, it can't stand on its own, right? Rav Chaim wanted to turn that whole idea on its head. He wanted to solve all these problems. He wanted to establish, and again, to us it's not revolutionary because all of us have heard of yeshiva. Sure, yeshiva. The, the concept didn't exist. It didn't exist anywhere? It did not exist. It, it, it existed. We have yeshivas of surah, pampadisa, yeah. great centers of learning, centers of learning. But the, but the modern idea of yeshiva, where there's shirim given daily, and there's a Seder Hayoyim where breakfast is this time, and the yeshiva davens together, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an organization. It's an establishment. That didn't exist. Where it had its own building, it was just the shul's base managers, base So it's, you have to understand this is revolutionary. And he felt that the Bachram needed structure in their life. He felt that the yeshiva should not be something that's beholden to the community. He was the first to send Mushulachim collectors from, the t- from far outside of a legend to all the different communities. Did the Vilna Gom advise him to do this? Ah, uh, so here we come to how he brought the idea to the Gura. Obviously, since he considered the Vilni in his Rebbe Muvak, nothing, especially such a bold undertaking was going, was going to be done without the Gura's approval. Excellent. So, when he conceived of this idea, and obviously a person who can conceive of such a bold idea is obviously a passionate, driven, um, idealistic person usually passionate, driven, and idealistic people, when they present their idea, it's with passion, it's with, it's with idealism, it's with fervor. And so he walked into the ground and he said, Rebbe, I have an idea. And he said, I want to build a yeshiva, and I want it to be a this and that, and he's going on for a half hour, explaining all the different details of his idea. And the girl looks at him and he says, Chaimel, I, I, I don't think it's a good idea. And Chaimel was shell-shocked. I mean, here's his, he had this grand plan, and the Grah, his Rebbe, who he respects like, you know, like anything, the Grah is telling him it's not a good idea. And so he walks out. He says, okay, you know, he walks out. What can he do? He walks out, and some say that it was a period of three years until he tried again. Three whole years. He kept it inside. Obviously, he still considered it a good idea. He came back after three years back to the Gruh and he said, Rebbe, three years ago, I present you with an idea. Here it is again. And the girl listens again a half hour. And the girl says, It's a wonderful idea, Chaim. It's a wonderful idea. And right now, you should start right now. You should start preparing a group of Bacharim. And you should begin. It's, it's an amazing idea. It's, gonna... it's obviously Ram like all of us ourselves, so shocked. Like, what changed? What changed? As Ram Chaim summoned up the courage, and he, and he was bursting with excitement inside, but he asked the Vilna Gaia Rebbe, he said, What was the difference between last time and this time? And the girl said something so profound. He said, the last time when you came in, it was with such passion and idealism that I was nervous that the idea wasn't perfectly Lishma. I was nervous that you were going to have your name associated with this brand new movement, the Yeshiva, yeshiva movement. And maybe a little bit there was Nigiyas, there was a personal, a personal motive, a personal motive in this endeavor. Personal motive, right? So the grub was worried that there's a little bit of this personal motive. He said, now that you came back three years later. And you presented it in such a clear manner without any passion, which, would, which, which we would assume maybe passion, again, is a very important thing. But with such an, an endeavor and undertaking, it has to be perfectly the He said, now I didn't hear you talking. I heard the idea talking. The idea is a wonderful idea. A full five years passed from that second meeting with the gra until the yeshiva was established. Five full years. What took place during those five years? Rav Chaim knew, as anybody who starts something that's big and that he wishes to last, knew that you can't just start the next day. There needs to be a tremendous amount of planning. And so he started with 10 bacher. He took 10 most brilliant, genius bacher, he sent letters to the rabbis of all the surrounding towns, the rabbanim, and said, send me your best. He started with 10 students in a shul, without their building, without anything. That was yet to come. And he began to collect funds. And he began to train these students in his mahalach of learning. And the mahalach of elashon was, not like yeshivas today, they started from the meem of brachas, and they learned all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way to the end of shas, Without missing anything, not the nashem nizikin, and Baba basra, or bababitzia. They learned the entirety of shas inside out, backwards, forwards. Most students stayed there for eight years at a time. and Over these eight years, they learned probably Adafa a day, I guess, in the seven years. And rigorous rigorous study in tanakh they knew call out these these when they left and her started with the ten bachrim five years later he had the funds to build this building that we see over here this building on the cover it was a tremendous gigantic this doesn't do it this doesn't do it um doesn't do it justice there are other pictures that show the majesty of elajim and part of the ideal that raf wanted to in, in into to establish was that yeshivas and Torah learning is not something to, look, to be looked down upon. On the contrary. Yes, it may need to be supported, but it needs to be held in the highest esteem. And so he built this building on the highest hill in Balajan. So that anytime anybody would look up from any perspective in Balajan, if you're ever in the old city of Yerushalayim or in Yerushalayim, so when you look up from any places, you see bells. If you're ever the bells building, right? Something looks like the Bessam Ikdash sometimes. Bells, right? Some, sorry, I'm I happy about it. Some, I'm not so happy. Bells. That's how it was with Balajan. It was the city on a hill, but really, it was the city on the hill, right? It was the the building on the hill of the and Everybody knew it and loved it and respected it. Again, Rav Chaim started with this idea of Mishulachim. And the Mishulachim went out to various cities all around to collect, and invariably they became not only Mishulachim tzedakah collectors, but recruiters, right? Because they would stand up in, in, in the base measures, they would give their passionate appeal, mixing in all different modes of Torah learning, and the people would be shocked. And say, where did they, who are these Bachram products of? We want to send our our children there, and so they would support the yeshiva, but it was anonymous supports coming from anonymous support coming from various places. So so Vilshen was not beholden to the city of Vilshen, which was very very important. So these students themselves were the mishloach. Exactly, the Bachram would go; he would send them out, and they would go out collecting, and they would become the they would become the uh, the re, the recruiters for the yeshiva. So we have to understand what type of person Chaim is. At this point, he's a Rav. We know him to be the Rav of a legend. He's the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva. He's giving shir every day. In Shas, not just in, in one Masati. He's giving shir in all of Shas. He's a fundraiser, the head fundraiser. He said in the Yatam Mishalachim. He had to be a diplomat in order to secure certain permits for the building. right? So he had a lot of government ties. Obviously, innovator. right? He began this... This, this movement. This? Which year? This is in the, later, the latter part of the 1700s. Closer to 1800s. Closer to How old was he again when the uh, shiva began? After? It was probably the 24 and then 3 years and then probably... Five. I mean, when it, probably he was probably 30 close to 30, 30, 30. 32, 33 when the, when the yeshiva began. Which is a remarkable, remarkable thing. What a 30-year-old could do. This yeshiva of Elijah became the prototype for all Subsequent yeshivas and almost any major yeshiva that we talk about today, from YU to Brisk and Rishon for the whole spectrum of orthodoxy, it can—they can all trace themselves back to but Be- they Also branched out to different approaches. Absolutely, we're going to talk about that. Absolutely, Vilozhn branched out to different approaches to the point that in today's yeshivas, it's hardly noticeable that Vilozhn approach, because the Vilozhn approach, like we said, was to learn all of Shas. It was modified as the generations went on because. You know, they they, they figured that the Bakram weren't capable of such a thing, of such a of, of such a mode of learning anymore. It's important to note that Rav Chaim not only wore all these different hats, but Rav Chaim was a personality. There's a story that there's a story that uh, has his role in Poisic, so there was two landowners in the town, two Balabatim, who came to him with a dispute over their land. One said that the fence was supposed to be here, the other said the fen- a matter of feet. They were fighting bitterly back and forth, each bringing proofs, rise. And they said, We're going to the Rav. So they went into, you know, in, in, into the Rav of Chaim. And they presented their case, each one again with passion. And Chaim listens to both sides. And he says, I want to be taken to the land. You know, to the land. I want to see the different parameters the perspectives. I want to look at the actual land that we're, that we're arguing, that's in dispute. So they bring him down to their yard and he's standing there and he says let me hear the opinions again and this one's yelling the land belongs to me and again they're arguing over a few feet and they're bitterly fighting and yelling and screaming and the other one says no it belongs to me and I can prove it and Chaim listens to the little thing he's stroking his beard and then he gets down on his hands and knees and he puts his ear to the ground and like he's listening for two minutes and he stands up and they're like a little amused they're a little you know they're looking at each other even like what's going on and finally one of them said he said Rebbe What exactly was that? So he said, he said, Well I heard your opinions. I wanted to hear the ground's opinion. And he said, So what was the ground's opinion? They said the ground he said, the ground told me that you two are so busy arguing who it belongs to. In a few years you're gonna belong to it. So it can't understand why it can't understand why you're arguing. And this was a person who had personality, who had character, who had charisma, obviously. Somebody who who founded such a movement. A student of Jewish history, anybody who knows even the basics, knows that at this time from, let's say, the 1780s and, and, and from then, throughout the 1800s and even today, was the founding of the Hasidic movement, right? We know that the Grah was the main, what we call, Misnagir. it's not a nice term to use. Misnagir means against. It wasn't against, right? The, if anything, the Hasidim were the misnagdim right? The Hasidim came to challenge the establishment, not the other way around. So, Rev. Dessler wasn't fond of using that word, so we're not going to use that word. But he was the head of the movement that was very much <clears throat> seemingly, right, to us, opposed very much to the point that, that, that the Vilna Goyen wrote a, wrote, a, wrote a ban on the Hasidim and, and banned them having, anything, having a, a, any of his students or followers to have anything to do with any of, these, any of the members of this movement, the Hasidim and, their, and the Rebbe's, the Tzaddikim. You, you put the a khair, right, which is very, very strong. Assumingly, Rav Chaim, who accepted not, not the mantle of leadership because the Grah had none, but in terms of learning, in terms of scholarship, he accepted the Torah of his rabbi, he would hold the same exact opinions against the movement. And this is a point of great, great dispute. Because while the names of most, if not all, very few exceptions, of the Litvish, so to speak, we'll call them the Litvish, right, from Lita, from Lithuania, of those tzadikims whose names were signed on this ban. We do not find R. name, and there's a lot of discussion uh, on, on, the, on the ban against the Hasidim, which the Vulnagoyim led to sign, which was which banned them from you know from from davening in their minyanim, from having anything to do, from eating their shechita. They were kicked out of the community of Jews, right? We do not find R. Chaim signature. Don't find that the signatures. There's a lot of discussion back and forth if this is a proof that he deviated from his from his Rebbe or not. One such legend goes, and again, we don't know the veracity, here, but, but, but just to say it because it's said, and we'd like to believe it, that one of the, one, one, one of the contemporaries of Reb Chaim who had signed his name on the ban, came to Reb Chaim and he said, how could you not sign a ban? He said, your Rebbe signed the ban, the Gura. He said, do you not consider your Rebbe to be an angel? So he said, the Gura is absolutely an angel but it takes more than an angel to sign a ban against, against another group of Jews. It takes more than an angel. That's one such legend that, that, is, that is told. Even, in, even historically, that we don't know whether that, whether that happened. It's a nice story. But historically, we know that Rav Chaim, the of his grandchildren, married into Hasidic families. So to say that he agreed with the ban and then allowed his grandchildren in his own lifetime to, to, to marry, it's very difficult to say very difficult because that's, that's going against right, the ban which ban any, any to have anything to do. Historically Nefesh achayim, which is the Sefer we're going to be learning and again I just want to make known that the Shirma are recorded and posted online so if you missed one you could still come you could still follow with us. Historically Nefesh is viewed as the answer to Hasidism whereas Hasidus had the Tanya the Sefer the Tanya written by the Baal Tanya the founder of the Lubavitch movement which codified, it's known as the Torah Shabal if you could use such words, right, of Hasidus. Meaning it's, it's all of the, found, found, the fundamental foundations of Hasidus in a little book, 53 chapters. So would that apply to non chabad Hasidim as well? Absolutely, absolutely. Tanya is viewed by all, by all without exception, by all Hasidic groups as being the foremost authoritative work on, on Hasidic philosophy, without, without, without question. It took it took the Baal Tanya 25 years to write Tanya. It's 53 chapters. I'll bring it in. Very very big words. Not many words in terms of, but the depth what he packed into Tanya is absolutely mind-boggling. The Balatanya, when he wrote this, how old was the uh, Tov at that time? The Baal Shem that wasn't alive anymore. Okay. But the Balatanya is oh. third generation Hasidus. Nice. I'll do a different a different class on, on the Hasidim, mm-hmm. and and part of this year is to try and to try and Dance on both sides of the mechitza. That's 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 one of the that's one of the purposes of this year, which I feel is important for today because we have both, and they both survived and they both came down. So we're supposed to take from both, as Rav Desler held and other tzaddikim. you know, I guess going back to my question, because I know that in some some ways there's difficult relations between Chabad and other Hasidic True. groups. True. But in, in any case, they would still regard the Tanya as being sort of a a codification of their. Absolutely, absolutely. A lot of the differences between chabad and other groups is a relatively new development with the last ready. before him, it was chabad was basically a Hasidus like all Hasidas. He distinguished it as being a missionary, so to speak, an outreach movement, which you know aroused the ire of certain who, who felt that they, they weren't interested in being reached out to, you know and and, and, and others who felt that his mode was different but his father-in-law, the Rayats, was, was respected by absolutely everybody. And up, up, I mean, he's the seventh in a chain, starting with the Baal Tanya. So the Baal Tanya was one of the foremost disciples of the Magad of Mizrich, who, in turn, was the foremost disciple of the Baal Shemtiv, so it's third generation Hasidus. And he was a contemporary of Levi Yitzhak of and the Neumeli Melech, the Revele Melech of Luzhensk, and his brother of Zusha, and the Magad of Kajnasher of Israel. All of the greats, the early Hasidic masters, who will we'll discuss as we're learning and Hashem, As funny as that sounds, but that's so there was like more unity between those groups at that time. The absolutely, absolutely, and at that time, the Tanya was viewed as being revolutionary. Everybody accepted it. Everybody received it. And today, it's learned by all Hasidic groups. Now that Hasidus had produced a cemented work, which included the foundations in ashkafa of a movement that was grounded in kabbalah that was grounded in zohar many sources of which the traditional torah scholars weren't familiar and so to them a lot of the new groups a lot of the the, the new Hugim and the new hanhagos the ways of the new group sounded very very suspect because they just weren't familiar with a lot of the concepts and so they viewed it as being an extremist um an, an extremist and, and overly emotional movement that was 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 an instance of a charismatic leader sweeping the masses into hysteria none of them they 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 felt could logically tell you what they were about why they were Davani late why they why, why, you know why they focused so much on ein od why they why they focused on tfila just as much as torah etc etc all the foundations of Hasidus. so they felt that it's just a joke and we who are real traditional torah scholars we know the Torah, they were, they're, they're a fringe, you know, outside group. The Valshanta was not known for a scholarship. When the Balatanya put out Tanya, it, it, it silenced them. They had nothing to say. Because here was a work which, in terms of its conciseness, that's a word, I don't think it's a word, in terms of its uh, brevity, right, included more than, than many, many, many of the traditional works of Mussert, which could fill a bookshelf included. And, all, and that everything was sourced. And it was brilliant in its, in its, in its comp- in composition. So anybody who looked at that, there was no way to say, oh, Hasidus is just some you know, fluffy, fluffy thing. This was a book that was grounded in the deepest, deepest, deepest knowledge and wisdom and intellect. Still to today, Chabad is called the Litvish Hasidus. Right? Because they take the emotional spirit of Hasidus and they show how it's all logical, how it's all intellectual, how it's all grounded in, in, in the deepest Torah knowledge. That's where they call themselves so, Chabad, right? Right? Intellectual, yeah. Exactly. It the Comes from the intellect, exactly. Right. So this led to the Misnagdim, right? Or to that to that camp feeling threatened. And feeling like they needed to go ahead and to protect the masses. Yet again, or the Kherim didn't work, right? Because this movement was sweeping, it was massive it's unbelievable what they accomplished in three generations, they had from what started with one person and five disciples spread to a mass movement that took up maybe 70-80% of Jews in Europe at that time. Except for, for white Russia, for, for Lithuania. So they felt threatened. And How much were they reaching out to the common man themselves? Very, very, very much. The Magid of Mizrich sent out no, all... No, the Litvaks, Oh, sure. the Litvaks, not at all. Which, which, again, I don't... This is not a shir on but... The whole hasidish movement was founded on reaching the, the common man for the for the simple reason that the mainstream establishment was so intellectual and so talmudic that the simple man who was working his field in, in the thing felt in it in was working you know his field felt very very disassociated and disconnected and he felt that hashem has no pride from his service because he's not a scholar so not only weren't they reaching out their lack of reaching out served as the as the source as the purpose for in the first place. So, why, why was Lithuania different? Lithuania was different because it was under the auspices of the Vilnagain. Lithuania. Oh, but still, you had common people. So, was everybody learned in Lithuania? No. There were more scholars uh, uh, that were f- that were more focused, heavily focused in that area because the grow was there. The Vilnagain was there. And, you know, when you have a torch like that, a magnet, so it draws. So, there was a stronger constituency of. Talmudic scholars there, and since the people, the simple common folk had access to them, and saw who these people were, so they respected Torah learning, and therefore that was their connection. Whereas the people outside who didn't have such connection to these and to these scholars, they felt very very disconnected. They felt disconnected. So Vilna was protected, so to speak, by the Gurah. Nobody would dare challenge his authority. But outside, the movement was sweeping all of Europe. And it was in this historical setting that Nevishhaim is written. Nevishim is the answer to Tanya. Nevishim comes to just like Tanya consolidated all the fundamental foundations of the Hashkafa of Chasidim, so too Nevishim consolidates the Hashkafa of the Vilna Vilnacoin, which was the traditionalist, so to speak, view of of, of the of the Lithuanian, of Lithuanian jury. What emerges, and this is going to be one of the big goals of this year, what emerges when one learns Nefesh Achayim and Tanya back to back, is that the similarities far, 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 but ridiculously far, outweigh the differences. The more one learns Nefesh Achayim, the more he understands Tanya. The more he gets into Tanya, he sees that Nefesh Achayim is saying everything that Tanya is saying. Now, obviously, if the Nefesh Achayim was opposed to Hasidim and, and, and created this book, and, 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 he, you know, and, he, and he wrote this book for the purpose of coming, not against, but to present the, the Litvish side of things, obviously there are differences, and we're going to encounter them, we're going to discuss them and, 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 and talk about them. But it's almost like two big branches coming out of the same trunk. Bediuk. Mm-hmm. Bediuk. exactly. And this is a term that we find in Chazal, Eilu ve'elu divrei Elokim right? Both this and this, both these and these, this opinion and this opinion are words of the living God. And that's going to be our goal as we're learning to quote from the Hasidic sources, and to learn Nebuchadnezzar in depth, which will hopefully provide us, really, with, what are we doing in this world? What are we doing in this world? We're here for a short time. What are we here for? What can we give to others? What can we give to ourselves? And what can we give to the master of the world? Not only to understand ourselves, but how to understand Hashem. What is Hashem? Who is Hashem? It's something that's so lacking, so often, that people just don't know God, right? the long flowing white beard on the roof of the Sistine Chapel. But like who, who is he? And it's so strong that Rav Nachman of Breslev, one of the great, great luminaries of Hasidism, used to have a lot to do with the Maskilim, the heretics at that time. The intellectuals, so to speak, the enlightened ones. And unlike other Hasidish masters who would shut them out of, of, of their court, Rav Nachman would spend time playing chess with them, learning with them, being the car of them, which is something that in Breslev they still do till today. Right, the open door in Brussels, if anybody's, anybody can come. And he would learn with them, and they would talk, and they were marveled by his genius. Reb was an, was an unbelievable genius. They were, they were absolutely awed. They would send him mathematical problems that their teacher could not solve. They would send to to he would in a, in a second. But one time, while they're playing chess, Reb looked up at them, and he told them a profound thing, that it not only applies to them, but it's something we can internalize. He said, Hebra, you know, Jews, he says, the God you don't believe in, I don't either believe in. I'll say it again. The God that you don't believe in, I don't either believe in. Meaning to say, your perception of God, which is too fairy tale like which is too fluffy, it can't exist, I don't either believe in that fairy tale version of God. You don't not believe in God. You just never encountered God. You don't know what God is. And that's profound. And today in, 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 in our society, in whatever sector of, of, of Orthodox Judaism, there abounds many, many, many Jews who are halachically committed. And they'll make this manim, and they'll daven and they'll make sure to say every word. But when it comes to the soul of the matter, when it comes to the soul of the matter, to come face to face with God. To understand him, and therefore to understand ourselves that we're created in his image, it's lacking. And again, we started this year by saying there's a lot of focus on the how, how to do it? What to do? Halakha. So much halakha, which is so necessary. It's the, it's the bread and butter of Yiddish guy. But too little of the why. There's a rabbi in Chicago who says, Torah is the yikr. That always bothered me. Because it sounds like it's an end and not the name. Exactly. I think we discussed this one. Well. Right. Torah is the yikr. <coughs> Hashem, Hashem is the ichor. Learning Torah is a means. It's one of the ways. It's a very, very strong way. As the Nev's and Shardalar will teach us, it's Tamatar Kenege Kula. But there's Tefillah. And there's Chesed. And there's Shabbos. And there's Sadiqit. And there's Yom Tev. And there's being Mechanach, our children, raising, raising generations of, of Jews. Doorways, all doorways to the same place. Their means to reach Hashem as the Iker. And that's why Hasidus came. But again, this is not a Shirin Hasidus. This is a Shirin Nev's HaChaim. Now, I, want to, I just want to read to you quickly from this book. I know reading is, is difficult to listen, but he's much more eloquent than I. I'm just going to read some sections from this place where he starts, as a biography on Nebuchadnezzar Chaim, where, where, he, where he discusses the, the, the writing and publication of Nebuchadnezzar and what it came to do. So I apologize, I didn't have the ability to copy, so if you could follow along. Rav Chaim's leading role in the history of the controversy between Masnagdim and Hasidim rests in large part on his authorship of Nevesha Chaim. That work remains to this day the classic exposition of the Mesnagdek, I don't like the word, but the, the, the Litvish worldview that dominated all the great Lithuanian yeshivas beginning with the yeshiva itself. In Nevesha Rabchaim treats, in a theoretical fashion, most of the major points dividing the two camps. Among the subjects dealt with are, one, the primacy of the actual performance of the mitzvah over stress on the proper intention, Right? The Hasidim were very focused on the intention, right? like we just said, the why of Yiddishka, not so much the how, also the how, but the focus is on the why, the Lashma. and Rav Chaim came to say, we also need the how. We also need the halachic observance. The highest goal of Torah study Torah lishma, as the increase in knowledge of Torah itself, not the perception of closeness to Hashem. Right? So he viewed Torah lishma, meaning Torah for its own sake, to know the Torah as opposed to know God, or that knowing Torah is knowing God, even if one doesn't have that consciously in mind. And above all, the preeminent place of Torah study in the hierarchy are religious values compared to all other mitzvahs, including prayer, whereas Hasidim put prayer just as high on a pedestal. And again, doing that, they allowed the common man to connect to God, right, because everybody can pray. One of the most famous, famous stories in, in, in Hasidim, which, again, whether it happened or not, that's not the point. The point is that it contains the soul of the matter that's how stories that's the nature of stories the whole terrorist stories right and it was yom kippur we've all heard this story we talked about it sam and i it was yom kippur and the shepherd's son was in shul he came to shul Yom kippur everybody's davening they're reading from the prayer books these are simple men but these are these are brokenhearted jews and they're coming to daven they're coming to return to their to their source and all of a sudden splitting, the, splitting the, 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 the tefillah, they heard this very, very, very shrill whistle. Very shrill whistle. And everybody's you know, like cringing, and they're looking around to see where the source is. And they see the shepherd's son, who's just, his, his head is up, and he's just whistling. Like, like you know, it's the end of the world, just whistling, whistling, whistling. And people are shushing him, shah. some even hold it to us, to whistle maybe even, making noise. And they're, and they're yelling at him, and this, is, and this is taking place in the Vashemtav's Shdibo the and the Vashemtav's Shul. And the Vashemtav slams on the Bima and he gets very, very, very upset, which is uncharacteristic of the Vashem. It's full of love. And he said, Don't shush him. He says, This simple boy's whistle, which encapsulates his desire to grow close to the master of the world in a way that only he knows how. Because he doesn't know how to read, but he knows how to whistle. That's what he does, he's a shepherd. And in that whistle contains the yearning of a Jewish heart, broken heart, much more than all of you who think you're all big and you can daven and you know how to, how to say words. But his whistle is much higher. And so let him keep on whistling and we'll keep on davening. And, and, and this story encapsulates this message that the Hashem brought to the world that there's so <clears throat> much that, att- that, that Hashem takes pride in the simple actions of simple Jews. It doesn't have to be all sophisticated and intellectual. That's nice. It's not necessary. Though a great deal of Nefesh Achayim is of immediate relevance to issues at dispute between Hasidic thinkers and their opponents, this is so important, it would be a mistake to see the work primarily as a response to the Hasidic movement and its philosophy. If it were merely, or even primarily that, the continuing popularity and influence of Nefesh Achayim down to our day, when the original differences between Hasidim and Messinaic have largely been forgotten, would be inexplicable. A number of issues stressed in the early polemical attacks on the Hasidic movement such as changes in liturgy, and the creation of separate communities are not even dealt with. Rather, Nefesh must be seen as the definitive statement of the view that Torah study is preeminent above all other mitzvot and qualitatively different from them. And it is the eloquence and depth, depth, with which Rav Chaim elucidates this view that explained, that explained the enduring influence of Nefesh achayim. So again, Yes, we are going to view Nefeshachayim historically as it was, which was a response and an answer to the Hasidic movement. But that's not it. That's not what The shir is not about that. The shir is, what can we take from this that's going to help us in our, Hashem, in our Torah, in our tefillah, in the way we treat others, in the way we treat our children, our wives? That's the question. It's not so much how to, uh, uh, you know, to start getting into the whole philosophical debate between the Hasidim and the Sange, although we will invariably touch on that. That's not the goal of the shir, and that's not the goal of Nefeshachayim read a little bit more. It says, Nefesh was immediately recognized as a seminal work. Rav Aaron Baxt, Rav of Shavil, wrote in his Askama to Ruach which was Rav Chaim v- of Elisha's explanation on Pirkei Avos. He says, When I read the letter requesting my Askama, my face flushed in humiliation, that I should give a letter of approbation to a work of the light of Israel, Rav Chaim of Elisha. In the first days after the Nefesh appearance, the publishers feared that others would copy from it as everyone understood that a new light had come into the world. Unbelievable. Strange, because in, in, over here what we're reading, he seems to say, look at how Nefeshachayim succeeded. And what we're about to read, he says, it's such a, it's such a disaster that nobody focused on Nefeshachayim. We'll get to there in a minute. It's just interesting. The six reprintings of Nefeshachayim within 50 years of its first printing in Grudna in 1824, which was after the death of Rav Chaim a attests to its immense popularity. It was reprinted in Vilna in 1837, Konigsberg 1840, 1860, 1861, in shkhudim in 1867, and again in Vilna in 1847. Given the paucity of printing houses and the general poverty of European Jewry, when well, they had no Svarim, they had to struggle to print Tanakhs, they had to struggle to print Gemaras. So such a work for this to be reprinted so many times was, was unprecedented. Minutes of Musr, you'll know that you have more than fifteen minutes. So I would imagine it's the same thing. Excellent, here. excellent. interestingly enough, Rav of Olayin was 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 the head of the movement again against learning Musr. He was the head of saying it's, it's bitl Torah. So, but but however, to the Balabat and people who either didn't have the head who wouldn't be learning otherwise because that wasn't their avoda, they were supposed to be supporting Torah institutions, etc. He did recommend to learn Musr. So it but could here, be that. But here, if you learn this. He's going to talk about the primacy of Torah. Exactly. So, and then you'll realize then that... will print up the other ones. Excellent. Excellent. Nor is the popularity of Nefesh Ha'ayim waned with the passage of time. There have been numerous reprintings in both the United States and Israel and even a printing in Shanghai. In Shanghai. When the Mir yeshiva fled from Poland and they went to Shanghai, they printed a Nefesh there using a printing press there. That's how important Nefesh was to the yeshiva. Unfortunately, and this is something that pains me greatly, and paints the author of this, which we're about to read. The yeshivas, while they understand and they appreciate the unbelievable importance of Nebuchadnezzar they focus only on one out of its four gates, the fourth, which is about Torah study. If the yeshivas were to, to learn the other three, the first of which discusses the importance of man, the second which discusses Akarish Baruch Hu, the third of which discusses, I'm sorry, the second of which discusses tefillah, and the third which discusses I am absolutely one billion percent sure that our institutions and our Yiddishkeit today would look very different. Look very different. Because yes, Torah study and Rav Chaim Alajan's exposition on Torah study is very, very important, supreme importance. But to but to, to take Navashim and make it just that, you're cutting out most, if not all. And that's what that's what this, this was written by Rabbi Abi Norm Frankel, who wrote a very, very, very important book called Nefesh Atzimsum. I don't know if you've seen it in English. Two-volume work. Right. Fascinating, fascinating job this person did. He's a British rabbi. And this is a response to a book review by Rabbi B'Talim Noar. Rabbi Tal Noar is a well-known scholar. He's best known for his involvement with the writings of Rav Cook, translator of rabbi Cook's writings. He's a brilliant genius. So he wrote a review, and this is the author answering that review. This is what he said. Life, I, again, I, I apologize that I didn't have the time to make copies. Life is complex, and our most significant actions in life are often motivated by a wide spectrum of catalysts driven by both conscious and subconscious objectives. Therefore, it is a considerable challenge when looking deeply into Hav Chaim magnum opus, Nefesh Ha-Khaim, to try to ascertain what may have primarily driven him to compose it and what motivated him to provide an urgent deathbed instruction to his son in 1821 to publish it as soon as possible. Was it simply a structured presentation, recording the enormously important worldview world view of Rav Chaim's revered master, the Vilna Gon? Was it a manifesto to set the tone for his newfound and soon-to-be world-famous Veleshing Yeshiva? Was it to be a broadside shot at the entire Hasidic establishment and attempt to bring them into line? Was it, de- was it a defense for the Misnagdic camp to shore up their opposition to the Hasidim by providing them with its own authoritative framework to dampen any attraction as a run-on sentence, to the looming specter of what for many was the compelling allure of the competing Hasidic philosophy, Batanya. In all likelihood, all of these factors and many more, both communal and personal, may have motivated Rav Chaim to, to at least some degree. Nevertheless, on investigation, it appears that there was indeed a single primary motivating factor that can be isolated as significantly influencing the presentation of Nevi'im However, in order to be able to l- relate to this factor, it is necessary to first dispel a smokescreen of deep-rooted misconception, which has persisted for the last 200 years about the perceived fundamental differences of faith between the Hasidim and the Messiah. And basically, the whole point of this book that he wrote, Nefeshat Simtsam, is to say that you think that the, that the, that the Hasidim, the Valshentav and the Vilna were arguing in matters of faith? Absolutely not. They both held the same thing. It was just, as he puts it, the matter of nuance, what to stress. To stress Hashem as being our father, so to speak, or to stress Hashem as being our king. Right, obviously, which would, this is just a very, very, in a nutshell. But if Hashem is our father, so he's very close to us and he loves us. And tefillah is just as important as learning because we have to talk to him and we have to relate to him as a Father does, as a child does to his father. And the Misnagdim would hold, again, and Hashem is the melech. He's far away. He's in his palace. He's shuttered up. And it's a much more rigid Yiddishkeit. And there's a lot of yira as opposed to ava, awe as opposed to fear, etc. So it was a question of nuance, but both agreed for sure that there's equal amount of father and king. That's just in a very, very basic, basic understanding. That's that's his, that's his goal. But listen to this, listen to this uh, paragraph that's so important. It should also be highlighted that while the Hasidic community has ignored the message of Nevi Chaim, due to their perception of the entire work as being philosophically disconnected from their own outlook, right? Because the Hasidim view Nebuchadnezzar Chayim as being, they don't want to touch Nebuchadnezzar Chayim, Right? Because Nebuchadnezzar Chayim is something that represents the opposite of what they're trying to learn, what they're trying to do. So not only did the Hasidim separate themselves from Nebuchadnezzar Chayim, he says the yeshivas did as well, which is what we just mentioned. The Misnagdim, on the other hand, have had a problem accepting the widespread study of Kabbalah. From the time of the Vilna Gaon, Ibn though the Gura was But didn't the only going to say the redemption is only going to, only come going to be Khan through Kabbalah. Death, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. He says that. In Eben Shlema. In Abbaslaima. Abb Slayma is a likud, I think it's the Grand Mishle, right. or where they quote it from. But it's brought down in Eben Shlema, absolutely. And the crow was the biggest mukubal of the generation. The crow, Right? We have no Hassaghav what the what the Vulnay. However Back to our historical context of the time, what was going on then? It's important to paint the history, the, the picture of the history. Chajestrel had just suffered a tremendous, tremendous blow in the 1600s by somebody called Shabsidzvi. Shabsidzvi, and and again, we have to even move further back. At the same time, was the Chalmanitzki massacres. Basically, there was a very, very, very wicked landowner called Bogdan Chelmitzky, who decided basically that he's going to wipe out and, and, and convince a certain certain group of rebels i'm forgetting exactly which political movement what was going on at the time but he convinced these people to just basically he was go ukrainian. out ukrainian and massacre and he, and he hated the poles who were who were dominating the ukraine at that
1: time uh-huh.
0: so, and the jews were in the middle okay so he, it was a revolt and so, invariably, the Jews are massacred, right? He, 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 he egged, the, egged them on, right? These, these uh, the, the Ukrainians, terrible. Right, they said that the, the blood was running in the street like water. Tens and tens and tens of thousands of, community, of Jews in communities and hundreds of communities were wiped out, I think in a, in a period of, of maybe a week or something like this, right? Or three weeks, wild, and, right? A very, very short amount of time. Any time throughout Jewish history... That there's dis- disaster, based on Chazal, which tells us that the Chavlei Mashiach, there's going to be the birth pangs of Mashiach. There's going to be wars of Gog Magog, which everybody has a different interpretation. But there's going to be fighting. There's going to be physical warfare and destruction. So we start to listen for the footsteps of Mashiach. That's just that's that's the Jewish people's nature. Constantly, constantly, it was like this. More more recently in our time. Is right after the Holocaust people were, were 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 swept up with the spirit of messianism with the return to Eretz to, Yisrael to, to right with the six-day war the miracles of the six-day war which again allowed and I don't want to say anything that might be, might be taken the wrong way but but really the Lubavitcher Rebbe and that whole movement which is we want Mashiach now and which caused some to view him as being as being Mashiach etc this was all a response to the Holocaust right and this this is true Throughout Jewish history, we find as a pattern. Soon after this tremendous massacre, where the Jews were decimated, decimated, absolutely decimated, downtrodden, destroyed, murdered in the streets. There arose to the scene somebody called Shamsatzvi. Shamsatzvi was a genius. Shamsatzvi was a big was very, very well versed, versed in Kabbalah. And he was very eloquent, he was very charismatic. And basically, to make a very, very long story short, he, together with the help of his student, of his pupil, Nathan of Gaza, walked all around to all the different towns in Ukraine and other communities as well. He had spread all throughout Europe. And he basically said, I'm Mashiach, right? And I've come to save you, and we're all going to go to Eretz Yisrael. And in preparation for the days of Mashiach, he started tearing down certain halachos, he himself acted very, very, very strangely with regard to certain events that he held, marrying a Torah scroll under a chuppah, right? Like, very, very strange things. And he actually succeeded, not only convincing the common folk, but he, he, he succeeded in convincing many of the, of the rabbis at the time because he was a big tamachachim, he was very well versed in Torah. And he started a march to the Holy Land. Now the question is, was he delusional? Did he actually think he was Mashiach? Or was he just trying to lead them astray? We don't know the answer to that question. But he started marching to the land of Israel, where he said there we're going to rebuild the temple, the Besamekdash. As they're traveling, they pass through one of the Arab uh, cities and, and, and countries. Again, I can't remember the details, excuse me. But the sultan at that time who was there. He, he had enough of this talk. And he basically took Shabbat Tzvi and he said, an ultimatum, we're going to kill you here. We're going to convert to Islam. And much to the shock of the tens of thousands of people who had joined this movement, this messianic movement, because they were longing and yearning for anything that would save them, he converted to Islam. He converted to Islam. Many converted with him. Others went totally off the dark because they were so disillusioned by this. They couldn't handle that shock. And... This was another blow, on top of the physical blow. This was a spiritual blow to the whole Jewish world. The letdown. Can you imagine the letdown? What type of letdown that is? The letdown. The Mashiach is not here. And we're cast back into the darkness of our, of our, of our circumstance. The circumstance of a Jew in Ukraine. Uh, what year did he pass away? Shab Tzvi? I'm not positive. I think it was the latter part of the 1600s. Okay, So it was about 100 years later when the uh, when the Baal Shem Tev, when the Shemtov movement mm-hmm. started. Now, from somebody who had either lived or had lived right after such a terrible, terrible event in the Jewish history, when a figure like the Baal Shem Tov, espousing Kabbalistic ideas, trying to sweep up the masses into, an, in, in, into a movement of inspiration and emotion, arises, what do you smell? Right? You, you smell the movement that had destroyed Judaism a generation earlier. And this was why the Vilna took such a hardline stance against the learning of Kabbalah. He said if Kabbalah is going to be learned by the masses, and people who, do not, who, who have not attained sufficient levels to be able to learn it and to be able to to be able to, uh, to process it properly, it's going to lead to destruction. And therefore, Rav Chayim, the, the, the villain of God, although he himself was the biggest Mekobo, he knew Kabbalah backwards and forwards, the, the whole entire Zohar on his fingertips, he had a hard line uh, ruling, ruling against that. Bless you. How do we get into this? He had a, a hard line ruling against Kabbalah, so... What are you talking about? No one knows. Okay. That was, <laughs> it's good that we're mentioning it. He had a hardline view against Kabbalah and therefore that was one of, the, uh, one of the reasons for the ban against Hasidim, which was, Hasidus was focused very heavily on, on Kabbalistic ideas. Ah, we got to that because the, Hasid- the modern day yeshivas following the Vilna Gaon hold that Kabbalah is not to be learned. And we have two minutes left. Let's just finish this sentence, this paragraph. No one in the Masnagda community has has any authority or would dare to challenge the status of Nefeshachayim as a seminal work that must be studied. Nevertheless, many in the Masnagda community have been generally guilty of attempting to rebrand Nefeshachayim, trying to ignore that it is a Kabbalistic work, failing to appreciate or even denying outright that engaging in the Kabbalistic concepts it is so intentionally presents for public consumption is an absolute prerequisite to properly relate to its message. They try to cover that over. Nefeshachayim is Musar. Yeah, Musar. Why? Because they only study the fourth shar. But if they were to learn, which is what we're going to be learning, the Kabbalistic idea is that the Nefeshachayim, the Rufchayim of Blazin, who was a Talmud of the Gura, he knew the dangers of learning Kabbalah if you're not ready. But he also knew that in order to attain any sort of depth in Yiddishkeit, any sort of depth in our relationship and, and awareness of ourselves, of our soul, and of God, we have to know the basics. And this Sefer was not meant for the elite. The Sefer is meant for you and I, right? You're the elite. It's not meant for me, right? It's meant for people who are holding. But Nefzah is for all of us. Nefzah was rendered fit for public, for public consumption, for anybody, not for elite, for anybody. But that still scares them. And so all they do is learn, he says, they treat it as an ethical work, a work of Musr, by only focusing to study on some selected, non kabbalistic parts of the book, thereby entirely miss the point of the book therefore from either the hasidic or misnagged perspective the key burning message of nefeshachayim which so badly needs to be applied to jewish life today has sadly and irresponsibly been ignored so it's not a, it's not a steer over here he was saying look and has been printed and printed and printed and yes it's studied but he's saying only a part of it is studied which really largely misses the point and so it's going to be our, our, our avoda together because I am somebody of somebody of zero stature. i for sure not stature to learn and teach such, such material. But Hashem grants me the Shemaya when a group of Jews get together for a, holy, for, a, for a holy purpose. And so all of us getting together on Tuesday nights, and again, if you miss, you can follow up. You can come, not come. At your, at your, at your will is no hard feelings. But if we're able to make it, to sit and to study this sacred together, we're going to emerge with a very clear system for how we are to connect to the depth of our souls, our significance, to the depth of a Baruch, who really, you know, the God that you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. But to really understand the image, so to speak, the Tzalam of God, and to connect thereby to Torah and to feel in the deepest possible way. Thank you. Well, thank, you. thank you. The volumes will be will be ready, Emirat next week by ready next week's year. Translated versions.